Section 70 of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Fournier, Marshall, Virginia, USA. The World's Story, Volume 10. England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 70. The Fate of Mary, Queen of Scots, 1587, by Sir Walter Scott. Queen Elizabeth had two courses in her power, which might be more or less generous, but were alike just and lawful. She might have received Queen Mary honorably, and afforded her the succor she petitioned for, or, if she did not think that expedient, she might have allowed her to remain in her dominions, at liberty to depart from them freely as she had entered them voluntarily. But Elizabeth, great as she was upon other occasions of her reign, acted on the present from mean and envious motives. She considered the Scottish queen not as a sister and friend in distress, but as an enemy, over whom circumstances had given her power, and determined upon reducing her to the condition of a captive. Mary was no subject of hers, nor, according to the laws of nations, had the English queen any right to act as umpire in the quarrel between the Scottish sovereign and her subjects, but she extorted in the following manner a sort of acquiescence in her right to decide from the Scottish queen. The messengers of Queen Elizabeth informed Mary that their mistress regretted extremely that she could not at once admit her to her presence, nor give her the affectionate reception which she longed to afford her, until her visitor stood clear, in the eyes of the world, of the scandalous accusations of her Scottish subjects. Mary at once undertook to make her innocence evident to Elizabeth's satisfaction, and this the Queen of England pretended to consider as a call upon herself to act as umpire in the quarrel betwixt Mary and the party by which she had been deposed and exiled. It was in vain that Mary remonstrated that, in agreeing to remove Elizabeth's scruples, she acted merely out of respect to her opinion, and a desire to conciliate her favour but not with the purpose of constituting the English queen her judge in a formal trial. Elizabeth was determined to keep the advantage which she had attained, and to act as if Mary had, of her full free will, rendered her rival the sole arbiter of her fate. The Queen of England accordingly appointed commissioners to hear the parties, and consider the evidence which was to be laid before them by both sides. The commission met at York in October 1568. At the end of five months' investigation, the Queen of England informed both parties that she had, on the one hand, seen nothing which induced her to doubt the worth and honour of the Earl of Murray, while, on the other hand, he had, in her opinion, proved nothing of the criminal charges which he had brought against his sovereign. She was, therefore, she said, determined to leave the affairs of Scotland as she had found them. To have treated both parties impartially, as her sentence seemed intended to imply her desire to do, the Queen ought to have restored Mary to liberty. But while Murray was sent down with the loan of a large sum of money, Mary was retained in that captivity which was only to end with her life. Elizabeth continued to treat Mary as guilty, though she declined to pronounce her so, and to use her as her subject, though she was an independent sovereign who had chosen England for a retreat, in the hope of experiencing that hospitable protection which would have been given to the meanest Scottish subject, who, flying from the laws of his own country, sought refuge in the sister kingdom. 
always demanding her liberty, and always having her demand evaded or refused, Mary was transported from castle to castle, and placed under the charge of various keepers, who incurred Elizabeth's most severe resentment when they manifested any of that attention to soften the rigors of the poor queen's captivity, which mere courtesy and compassion for fallen greatness sometimes prompted. During this severe captivity on the one part, and the greatest anxiety, doubt, and jealousy on the other, the two queens still kept up a sort of correspondence. In the commencement of this intercourse, Mary endeavored by the force of argument, by the seductions of flattery, and by appeals to the feelings of humanity, to soften towards her the heart of Elizabeth. She tried also to bribe her rival into a more humane conduct towards her, by offering to surrender her crown and reside abroad, if she could but be restored to her personal freedom. But Elizabeth had injured the Queen of Scotland too deeply to venture the consequences of her resentment, and thought herself, perhaps, compelled to continue the course she had commenced, from the fear that, once at liberty, Mary might have pursued measures of revenge, and that she herself would find it impossible to devise any mode of binding the Scottish Queen to perform, when at large, such articles as she might consent to when in bondage. Elizabeth had cause to regard the Queen of Scots with fear, as well as envy and hatred. The Catholic party in England were still very strong, and they considered the claim of Mary to the throne of England, as descended from the Princess Margaret, daughter of Henry the Seventh, to be preferable to that of the existing Queen, who was, in their judgment, illegitimate, as being the heir of an illegal marriage betwixt Henry the Eighth and Anne Boleyn, and various plots were entered into among the papists for dethroning Elizabeth, and transferring the kingdom of England to Mary, a sovereign of their own religion, and in their eyes the lawful successor to the crown. As fast as one of these conspiracies was discovered, another seemed to form itself, and coming so closely the one after the other, produced one of the most extraordinary laws that has ever passed in England, declaring that if any rebellion, or any attempt against Queen Elizabeth's person should be meditated by, or for, any person pretending a right to the crown, the Queen might grant a commission of twenty-five persons, who should have power to examine into and pass sentence upon such offences. And after judgment given, a proclamation was to be issued, depriving the persons in whose behalf the plots or rebellion had been made, of all right to the throne and it was enacted that they might be prosecuted to the death. The hardship of this enactment consisted in its rendering Mary, against whom it was leveled, responsible for the deeds of others, as well as for her own actions, so that if the Catholics arose in rebellion, although without warrant from Mary, or even against her inclination, she was nevertheless rendered liable to lose her right to succession to the crown, and indeed, to forfeit her life. Nothing short of the zeal of the English government for the reformed religion, and for the personal safety of Elizabeth, could have induced them to consent to a law so unjust and so oppressive. This act was passed in 1585, and in the following year a pretext was found for making it the ground of proceedings against Mary. Anthony Babington, a young gentleman of fortune and of talents, but a zealous Catholic, and a fanatical enthusiast for the cause of the Scottish Queen, had associated with himself five resolute friends and adherents, all men of condition, in the desperate enterprise of assassinating Queen Elizabeth and setting Mary at liberty. But their schemes were secretly betrayed to Walsingham, 
the celebrated minister of the Queen of England. They were suffered to proceed as far as was thought safe, then seized, tried, and executed. It was next resolved upon that Mary should be brought to trial for her life, under pretense of her having encouraged Babington and his companions in their desperate purpose. She was removed to the castle of Fotheringay, and placed under two keepers, Sir Amias Paulet and Sir Drew Drury, whose well-known hatred of the Catholic religion was supposed to render them inclined to treat their unfortunate captive with the utmost rigor. Her private cabinet was broken open and stripped of its contents. Her most sacred papers were seized upon and examined. Her principal domestics were removed from her person. Her money and her jewels were taken from her. Queen Elizabeth then proceeded to name commissioners, in terms of the Act of Parliament which I have told you of. They were forty in number, of the most distinguished of her statesmen and nobility, and were directed to proceed to the trial of Mary for her alleged accession to Babington's conspiracy. On the 14th October, 1586, these commissioners held their court in the great hall of Fotheringay Castle. The evidence which was brought to convict the Queen of Scotland was such as would not now affect the life of the meanest criminal, yet the commission had the cruelty and meanness to declare Mary guilty of having been accessory to Babington's conspiracy, and of having contrived and endeavoured the death of Queen Elizabeth, contrary to the statute made for the security of the Queen's life, and the Parliament of England approved of and ratified this iniquitous sentence. At any other period in the English history, it is probable that a sovereign attempting such an action as Elizabeth meditated might have been interrupted by the generous and manly sense of justice and humanity peculiar to a free and high-minded people like those of England. But the despotic reign of Henry Eighth had too much familiarized the English with the sight of blood of great persons, and even of queens, poured forth by the blow of the executioner, upon the slightest pretexts. And the idea that Elizabeth's life could not be in safety while Mary existed was, in the deep sentiment of loyalty and affection which they entertained for their queen, and which the general tenor of her reign well deserved, strong enough to render them blind to the gross injustice exercised upon a stranger and a Catholic. Yet, with all the prejudices of her subjects in her own favor, Elizabeth would fain have had Mary's death take place in such a way as that she herself should not appear to have any hand in it. Her ministers were employed to write letters to Mary's keepers, insinuating what a good service they would do to Elizabeth and the Protestant religion if Mary could be privately assassinated. But these stern guardians, though strict and severe in their conduct towards the Queen, would not listen to such persuasions, and well was it for them that they did not, for Elizabeth would certainly have thrown the whole blame of the deed upon their shoulders, and left them to answer it with their lives and fortunes. She was angry with them, nevertheless, for their refusal and called Paulet a precise fellow, loud in boasting of his fidelity, but slack in giving proof of it. As, however, it was necessary, from the scruples of Paulet and Drury, to proceed in all form, Elizabeth signed a warrant for the execution of the sentence pronounced on Queen Mary, and gave it to Davison, her Secretary of State, commanding that it should be sealed with the Great Seal of England. Mary received the melancholy intelligence with the utmost firmness, the soul, she said, was undeserving of the joys of heaven which would shrink from the blow of an executioner. She had not, she added, 
expected that her kinswoman would have consented to her death, but submitted not the less willingly to her fate. She earnestly requested the assistance of a priest, but this favor, which is granted to the worst criminals, and upon which Catholics lay particular weight, was cruelly refused. The queen then wrote her last will, and short and affectionate letters of farewell to her relations in France. She distributed among her attendants such valuables as had been left her, and desired them to keep them for her sake. This occupied the evening before the day appointed for the fateful execution. On the 8th February, 1587, the Queen, still maintaining the same calm and undisturbed appearance which she had displayed at her pretended trial, was brought down to the great hall of the castle, where a scaffold was erected, on which were placed a block and a chair, the whole being covered with black cloth. The master of her household, Sir Andrew Melville, was permitted to take a last leave of the mistress whom he had served long and faithfully. He burst into loud lamentations, bewailing her fate, and deploring his own in being destined to carry such news to Scotland. "'Weep not, my good Melville,' said the Queen, "'but rather rejoice, for thou shalt this day see Mary Stuart relieved from all her sorrows.' She obtained permission, with some difficulty, that her maids should be allowed to attend her on the scaffold. It was objected to, that the extravagance of their grief might disturb the proceedings. She engaged for them that they would be silent. When the queen was seated in the fatal chair, she heard the death warrant read by Beale, the clerk to the privy council, with an appearance of indifference. Nor did she seem more attentive to the devotional exercises of the Dean of Peterborough, in which, as a Catholic, she could not conscientiously join. She implored the mercy of heaven, after the form prescribed by her own church. She then prepared herself for execution, taking off such parts of her dress as might interfere with the deadly blow. The executioners offered their assistance, but she modestly refused it, saying she had neither been accustomed to undress before so many spectators, nor to be served by such grooms of the chamber. She quietly chid her maids, who were unable to withhold their cries of lamentation, and reminded them that she had engaged for their silence. Last of all, Mary laid her head on the block, which the executioner severed from her body with two strokes of his axe. The headsman held it up in his hand, and the dean of Peterborough cried out, "'So perish all Queen Elizabeth's enemies!' No voice, save that of the Earl of Kent, could answer Amen. The rest were choked with sobs and tears. Thus died Queen Mary, aged a little above forty-four years. She was eminent for beauty, for talents, and accomplishments. Nor is there reason to doubt her natural goodness of heart and courageous manliness of disposition. Yet she was, in every sense, one of the most unhappy princesses that ever lived, from the moment when she came into the world in an hour of defeat and danger, to that in which a bloody and violent death closed a weary captivity of eighteen years. End of section 70